Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the Biden administration says it's making progress towards its goal to slow migration from Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador by addressing the causes of that migration. The White House call to action foregrounds private sector investments as key to creating economic opportunity and to rooting out corruption in the region. And companies like Microsoft and PepsiCo have stepped up to do, well, what exactly? And how does this differ from the support for transnational corporations and their extractive, profit-driven policies that have misled U.S. involvement for decades? Azadeh Shashahani is Legal and Advocacy Director at Project South. She'll join us to raise some questions about the U.S. government's claim that this time they're really bringing stability and security to northern Central America. Also on the show, Facebook would appear to be zero for four in tests of its ability to detect and reject ads containing blatant election-related misinformation in this case ahead of important elections in Brazil. The group Global Witness found what they're calling a pattern of the social media platform allowing ads on the site that violate the most basic of standards, including, for example, telling folks the wrong day to vote. At what point does, oops, but please believe we take all of this very seriously, stop being a plausible excuse? We'll talk with John Lloyd, Senior Advisor at Global Witness. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. In the first part of a series of reports on Afghanistan, NPR host Steve Inskeep interviewed current Afghan Defense Minister Mohammad Yakub Mujahid. As Bryce Green wrote for Fair.org, in his introduction, Inskeep referenced Yakub's father, the former head of the Taliban, Mullah Muhammad Omar, as, quote, the leader who refused to turn over Osama bin Laden in 2001 a refusal that led to the U.S. attack, close quote. Well, the idea that the Taliban refused to turn over bin Laden and that this led to the U.S. attack is part of the commonly accepted chronology of the war, but it's a distortion of history. As Green reminds, before September 11, 2001, the Taliban, who had a deeply contentious relationship with al-Qaeda, repeatedly signaled their willingness to work with the U.S. in bringing bin Laden to justice. A former Taliban foreign minister told Al Jazeera that they'd used unofficial channels for years to try and resolve the Osama issue, including a multinational tribunal. Proposals that the former CIA station chief in Pakistan has confirmed and acknowledged were rejected. George W. Bush flatly announced, quote, there are no negotiations, close quote, and began bombing. Any diplomatic options, including the Taliban's offer to give up bin Laden without proof of evidence of his involvement in the attacks, were dropped. But even if NPR's version were true, as Nathan Robinson and Noam Chomsky recently noted in Current Affairs, the U.S. invasion would still have been an unlawful act of aggression. If the Bush administration wanted 
to defend Americans from another terrorist attack, the authors wrote, they would have pursued the criminal network responsible for the original attack. NPR's historical framing is an attempt to paint the Taliban as ready to defend bin Laden to the death and therefore complicit or at least supportive of the September 11th attacks. It's an inaccurate portrayal that serves to retroactively justify the U.S. assault on one of the poorest countries in the world. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. Listeners may remember Vice President Kamala Harris last summer on her first official international trip, telling Guatemalans who might consider migrating to the United States, do not come. While that language was criticized by some as tone deaf, the administration's message that they would be, as the New York Times put it, breaking a cycle of migration from Central America by investing in a region plagued by corruption, violence, and poverty, was well and ingenuously received. The White House has since announced some $2 billion in private sector commitments to Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, part of what they've dubbed a call to action to engage the root causes of migration from the region by driving what officials repeatedly describe as an ecosystem of opportunity that will allow people of the region to build healthy lives at home. U.S. corporate news media never met a public-private partnership they didn't like, and they aren't so big on using critical history to shape foreign policy coverage. So if you want to hear challenging questions about this White House plan to bring peace and prosperity to northern Central America, they won't be the place to look. Our guest raises some of those questions in a recent piece co-authored for In These Times titled, The White House's Plan to Stem Migration Protects Corporate Profits, Not People. Azadeh Shahani is Legal and Advocacy Director at Project South. She's also a past president of the National Lawyers Guild. She joins us now by phone from Atlanta. Welcome to Counterspin, Azadeh Shahani. Thank you very much for having me. Well, U.S. government involvement in northern Central America is a long history, violent on many levels, and I don't want to pretend we're addressing all of that right now. But if you don't put the Biden administration's call to action in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador in a historical context, it seems like you just can't see it clearly. So please talk us through a bit about what you and others see as primary points of concern about this plan and about the approach that it reflects? So one of the primary concerns is the administration's lack of acknowledgement about the long history of U.S. intervention and facilitating coups against leftist presidents and democratically elected governments in support of U.S. corporate and business interests in the region, you know, from Guatemala to El Salvador to Honduras. And in Honduras, as recently as 2009, of course, we had a coup supported by the Obama administration toppling the democratically elected president, Manuel Zelaya, 
And so the U.S. obviously has had a very clear role in destabilizing the region, which has in turn led to forced migration. So, for example, the number of Honduran children crossing the border increased by more than 1,000 percent in 2014, so within five years of the coup. And as another example, immigration from Mexico has doubled since the U.S. signed the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1994, which has had the impact of undercutting a small business and crushing low-income workers and has made migration, really forced migration, a matter of survival. And so, you know, the question that you really need to be asking is, what is driving this call to action? Is it actually supporting people, including indigenous communities? Obviously not. You know, what lies at the heart of this call to action, like previous U.S. government plans towards Central America, and I should say Latin America generally, is to preserve and promote corporate interests. Well, concretely, for one thing, the U.S., we're told, has a commitment from this company, Sanmar, that we're told is going to create 4,000 jobs. You know, I think U.S. listeners understand that media are very interested in promises of job creation and much less interested in following up on how it plays out. But just using that as an example, what is there to think about there? Right. So Sanmar is a U.S.-based apparel company. And so supposedly it's going to purchase more from Elcatex, which is a Honduras-based garment manufacturer that Sanmar partially owns. And so the Collective of Honduran Women, which is an organization of women who work in Honduras's garment sweatshops, has long denounced the low wages, long hours, and serious repetitive motion injuries that they suffer in Honduras's textile industry. And they actually submitted a petition to the Inter-American Commission, which has been admitted. The petition was submitted on behalf of 26 women who have suffered some serious injuries as a result of working in the garment factories, including three LCAPEX workers with alleged permanent partial disabilities. And so, you know, these are issues of serious concern. And, you know, the issue is also lack of living wages and labor rights for the workers in the garment industry. And so the true beneficiary of Sanmar's increased purchasing from LCAPEX It is going to be Sanmar itself because Sanmar is a partial owner of Elcatex and also, you know, one of the corporate elite, which is in a pattern we see repeatedly that, you know, these business bills actually support the oligarchy in Northern Central America. Well, this is obviously connected because anti-corruption and the idea that corruption is going to be rooted out is key to the call to actions promises here. There's an angle list about, you know, you're going to get on this list if you've been involved in any sort of corruption. How do you see that playing out in practice in terms of these deals that are being made? Right. Well, we're not really seeing actual accountability, you know, when the one exception being Honduras. So, you know, the 2009 coup was followed by 12 years of plundering and corruption. 
And so now the Honduran president, Xiomara Castro, and a new Congress have pledged to combat corruption and restore state institutions. So as a part of this, Honduras recently passed a new energy law, which, among other elements, is basically going to enable the government to renegotiate the contracts by which it purchases energy from private energy producers and set more reasonable rates. Because right after the 2009 coup, the government has started negotiating these contracts with the private sector that basically gave them huge profits. So it was estimated that the Honduras energy company, about 70% of its revenue was going to these private companies, whereas if it produced the energy itself, it would be a lot less money. So, you know, you would think that this is something that the U.S. would be supporting Mm -hmm. based on the anti-corruption rhetoric at the root of the call to action and all the rest. But then we see the U.S. ambassador to Honduras criticizing the law on Twitter when it was introduced in the Honduran Congress, expressing worry about this effect on foreign investment, which again shows us that the U.S.'s true motives are corporate profit. Right. Here you have an example of a state saying they want to use their state resources to benefit their own people. And you have the U.S. saying, "Mm, well, you know, maybe that's not a good idea. It certainly should raise some questions. Well, how we think that migrants should be treated when they arrive in the U.S. is a, is a separate, if deeply related, question to foreign policy that is affecting and has affected conditions in those home countries. If the goal were to stem migration, and I'm not saying anything, frankly, about that as a goal in itself, but if the goal were to stem migration from northern Central America by making or helping to make lives safer and more livable there, what would that policy look like, including what would the U.S. stop doing if those were the real sincere goals? I think as a first step, the White House would honestly contend with the bloody U.S. history of intervention in the region, including coups and the financing and backing of military regimes as they carried out widespread atrocities, including in Guatemala uh, and El Salvador. And the U.S. basically must break free of the banana republic mentality that sees the region as a source of natural resources and cheap labor and begin to respect the autonomy and self-determination of the peoples in the region. And so at the very least, The call to action should include a demand for U.S. corporations that operate in the region to pay living wages and respect labor rights, and to also respect the land and territorial rights of indigenous peoples and to obey rather than to weaken relevant national laws. And so those would be some steps in the right direction. Do you have any thoughts for journalists who are covering this set of issues in terms of things that they might be digging deeper into or maybe patterns that they might avoid? Sure. Well, stop taking things at face value, you know, especially calls to action and statements coming from the White House. You know, let's try to dig deeper to see what lies at the root of these calls to action, you know, what what corporations does this benefit, what oligarchy or set of actors, you know, including people with enormous influence on politicians in Latin America, 
And look at the connections also, you know, between U.S. imperialism, corporate interest, and forces such as the School of Americas that is also based in Georgia that for a long time has trained military forces and paramilitary forces in Latin America in tactics of torture and repression and is open and running to this day. And so, you know, let's let's make the connections and hold the White House accountable for the hypocrisy when they're calling for you know, democracy and human rights and the rule of law and anti-corruption initiatives. What, that, what does that actually mean when we see the actual opposite? Absolutely. We've been speaking with Azadeh Shashahani. She's Legal and Advocacy Director at Project South. They're online at projectsouth.org. And you can find her recent co-authored piece on the White House Call to Action on inthesetimes.org. Thank you so much, Azadeh Shashahani, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me. Social media platforms' role in shaping the sharing and fomenting of ideas that they purport to merely facilitate is a widely diagnosed concern. As with any kind of media criticism, it's important to look at broad patterns of societal impact and to track and unpack the distortions of these media in real time, as they have important real-time, real-world effects. Our next guest's recent work does both, really. Global Witness has been monitoring Facebook's failure to check outright disinformation in the run-up to elections in Brazil. John Lloyd is senior advisor at Global Witness. He joins us now by phone from London. Welcome to Counterspin, John Lloyd. Thanks for having me. Well, before we talk about what you found, let me ask you why you chose to conduct the inquiry. What were the questions or concerns that that drove uh, your investigation into Facebook's role in Brazilian elections? The reason that we chose Brazil is we've realized that the choices of the world's major tech companies have had a big impact online before and after high-stakes elections around the world. And all eyes are on Brazil this year. The reason being is that disinformation featured heavily in its 2018 election. And this year's election has already been marred by reports of widespread disinformation spread from the very top. The president, Bolsonaro, right now is already seeding doubt about the legitimacy of the election result. And that's leading to some fears in Brazil of a January 6th style stop the steal kind of coup attempt. In addition to that, we've also done some research into Facebook's ability to detect hate speech in other areas, which it's called priority countries, so Myanmar, Ethiopia, and Kenya. And what we found in those investigations was that, well, they didn't detect any of it, and really with no explanation. So we thought Brazil was a good opportunity to kind of see if they're putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak. They have highlighted it as a priority country when it comes to elections. And really, outside of the U.S. midterms, there's no bigger election this year. Well, then tell us about the investigation itself. What did you do exactly? And what did it tell us? Well, we sourced, firstly, 10 examples of election-related disinformation. Some of those were real-life examples, and others we had pulled from 
the Brazilian Electoral Authority's counter disinformation program. So the election authority in Brazil had said that it had been working with social media companies in terms of helping identify and, and do a bit of debunking of some common election disinformation. So we chose examples that largely fell into two categories. Firstly, we did outright false election information. So that had like the wrong voting day, different things about how to vote. So for example, instructions on how to vote by mail, which is banned in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And then we had a second category of ads, which were content aimed to delegitimize the election result. So it was specifically about Brazil's voting machines, which they've used without incident since 1996. So we created those ads and then we set them up with an account which should have gone through their ad authorizations process. And that's where an account posting political, social issue or election related content has to be verified. Really, we broke all the rules when it came to setting up that account. We set it up outside of Brazil. We used a non-Brazilian payment method. We posted ads while I was in Nairobi and then back here in London, which is not allowed. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm not Brazilian, so you need to be a Brazilian present ID. So there were lots of opportunities for Meta to detect that this was an, an authentic account. So then we created that account and then we submitted our examples of disinformation and all of them were accepted. All of them, all of them, including the ones that said the wrong day on which you should vote. Yes, and and actually, um, initially, one of the ads that we submitted was rejected under Facebook's ads about social issues, elections, or politics policy. But just six days later, without any intervention from us, the ad was approved, again, without any explanation. So this bizarre sequence of decisions from Facebook really seriously calls into question the integrity of its content moderation systems, especially, I think, because that was another opportunity for some sort of additional review, both of the authenticity of our account. We weren't supposed to be allowed to post any political content. And then also to review the other ads that we posted. So it was quite confusing and quite concerning, too. Absolutely, and and disheartening. Well, you have stated, and you've also looked at Myanmar, Ethiopia, and Kenya, so this isn't just out of the blue. This is something that you chose to look at Brazil because there have been pre-existing problems and issues with this content moderation process. So, in other words, you would think that Facebook would be being extra vigilant at this point, having already been called out on this in the past. Absolutely. And it's really part of a trend, which is Facebook will tout the ability of its content moderation systems to pick this stuff up. And we just bypass it so easily. And one thing that I'll just say that it's important to note is the reason that we choose ads is because we can schedule those ads in the future and they still go through that same content moderation process but nobody ever ends up actually seeing the content. So we can see that the ads go through the content moderation process and are approved, but then we take them down before the scheduled uh, launch date of those ads. But as far as we know, the content moderation process is exactly the same for that organic content that people just post on Facebook and for ads as well. And if anything, 
for election-related content. It sounds like for ads, it's even stricter. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that clarification. Well, you have stated that Facebook knows very well that its platform is used to spread election disinformation and undermine democracy around the world. I've not read the very latest shocked, simply shocked corporate response, but it doesn't matter because we judge them by their actions and not by their press releases. So what are you at Global Witness, and I know others as well, what are you calling for at this point? What what needs to change from Facebook and then maybe in terms of public understanding of or reckoning with Facebook? Yeah, our asks of Facebook are really to take this seriously. It has to consider all of this, putting our safety as a priority, as a cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. And with the U.S. midterms around the corner, they have to get it right, and right now. So our recommendations fall into two main categories. One is around resourcing, and the other is around transparency. So we want to make sure that they properly resource its content moderation and the ad account verification processes, just getting all of that up to scratch. But then on the transparency side, crucially, we need them to show their work. It's not enough to dazzle us with statistics that have no base of reference. We don't know what the common denominator is. So saying that they've removed 1,000 accounts or 100,000 accounts I don't know if that's good or bad. Mm -hmm. Same with the amount of posts, because there's nothing to compare it to. But the one thing that we do know is that our content that we tested from my computer here in London all got through. So ultimately, it falls down to resourcing its content moderation capabilities and those integrity systems deployed on the platform globally as well, not just in countries that it thinks are more important. Mm -hmm. And then... We want them to publish their risk assessments that they do for each country as well. We know that they're likely to have done one for Brazil. And really, we want to make sure that in languages that aren't English and in countries that aren't the United States, that they're actually doing what they say they're going to do. So perhaps that means some verified independent third-party auditing Mm -hmm. so that Meta can be held accountable for what they say they're doing and aren't just left to mark their own homework. Then when it comes to people like me and you, there's a real opportunity to be a bit skeptical about what you're seeing online. And even things like the paid-for disclaimers, we weren't required to put one of them on any of our content because we bypass the political ad authorization process. So even things like that, I think it's maybe doing a little bit of additional research if you're seeing something and it's shocking probably designed to be a bit shocking. So you want to verify that from trusted sources. All right, then. Well, thank you very much. We've been speaking with John Lloyd. He's Senior Advisor at Global Witness. You can find their work online at globalwitness.org. Thank you so much, John Lloyd, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me. Cheers. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. For more information, you can check out our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.